Welcome to the MLB Trade Rumors Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the MLB Trade Rumors Podcast. My name is Dara McDonald of MLB Trade Rumors and with me this week is MLB TR founder Tim Durkis. How are you doing, Tim? Good. How are you, Dara? I'm doing very well, thank you. Uh, we are going to talk about the off-season happenings. Uh, first, I'm just going to quickly pitch you on our front office package because the winter meetings are coming up next week and things are going to get busy. So if you sign up for the front office package, it's less than three bucks a month. You get rid of the ads. You get all kinds of extra stuff, extra content that you don't get if you're just enjoying the site for free, which is also fine. Tim, do you want to talk about Contract Tracker some more or... Yeah, contract tracker still awesome. I'm still I'm still pitching that. Um, we just put up uh, some stuff yesterday, kind of showing how to use it. Um, it's the best contract MLB contract research tool you can possibly find. I really believe that. We worked really hard on it. We have data dating back to 2010, and we have a lot of cool uh, criteria you can search contracts by to try to find comparables and stuff like that. So check it out. Indeed. Okay, so let's talk about what's going on. Today is Tuesday, November 28th, as we are recording this. The baseball offseason, unlike other sports, is sort of like an old-timey train or something. It takes a long time to pick up steam and get going, so not a ton has happened, but one team has been very, very busy, which is the St. Louis Cardinals. Tim, you're a Chicago guy. Does this bother you <laughs> that the Cardinals um, are doing things? No, I've I've said in a few chats and stuff, like I'm so far past like normal Cub fandom that I, I'm not like mad if the Cardinals do good things or vice versa or whatever. It's just I'm I'm so jaded now. So um <laughs> I mean I do have opinions about things that these teams do, but I would hope that they're objective. Um I I, I was certainly surprised that John Mozeliak said very clearly he was going to get three starting pitchers, um, that he had them all by November 27th. I, I would not have seen coming. Wasting no time. Um, okay, so we talked a little bit about Lance Lynn on the last episode. Since then, they've also added Kyle Gibson and Sonny Gray, a much more exciting addition than uh, Lynn or Gibson. No offense to those two guys. So Sonny Gray got three years, $75 million, plus a club option for 2027. Uh, what were your feelings on this, Tim? Um, so we did a lot of debating about whether Gray would get four years. Um, and as a, as a guy who's starting his new contract at age 34, that there's not much precedent for that happening with starting pitchers. It happened with Jacob deGrom, who Sonny Gray obviously is not. Um, and so, you know, Steve Adams was kind of uh, in the camp that he would, and Anthony Franco was kind of in the camp that he would not. And I was kind of just letting them, you know, sway me back and forth and stuff. And, you know, I, I made that call ultimately that he would get that and he did not. So we were definitely wrong on that. Um, you know, so we try to dissect why. And there's a lot that you don't know with these types of things and trying to make predict predictions in October and stuff. Um, but I would say that November free agent signings are generally, you know, early, you know, with your train analogy, this thing has kind of just left the station. So I think Sonny Gray signed kind of for the somewhat of the median expectation of most people who try to predict this. So it's kind of just right what people thought. 
Um, and I think that if you sign in November, unless a team offers something way beyond expectations, you're usually going to get more if you let the market develop into December. And so, you know, a guy that we were looking at with Gray was as a comparable was Hyunjin Ryu, who was a little bit younger, but, you know, was something of a comp. And I, I look back at Ryu and his market did develop into late December. And then there was also the fact that he went to the Blue Jays where, you know, no offense to the Blue Jays, but I've heard former Blue Jays GMs and stuff talk about this. It's not always a top destination for free agents. So I think that, uh, you know, if you're maxing out your your dollars as a free agent, you're going to not rush to sign and you're going to be willing to sign with anybody. Um, and so I think that was true of you. I don't know if that's true of Gray. And I don't offer that up as an excuse for being wrong. You know, uh, it, it's certainly possible that nobody was offering Gray four years, no matter what. Um, but I, I don't really think he pushed it. I think he was pretty clear about wanting to um, pitch in St. Louis. And when they made a nice, solid offer, he went and took it. Yeah, it's always hard to read the tea leaves, like because Gray gave a press conference yesterday and said that the Cardinals were always his first choice. But uh, he's also not going to go into the press conference and say, I'm here begrudgingly against my will only because they paid <laughs> You know, me, I'm so. still waiting for that press conference where it's like, <laughs> man, this is my fifth choice and I don't like this town, but I had to do it. Yeah. So who knows? So Gray, he got himself a solid contract. I remember the discussions. Uh, we were looking at guys who sort of signed at that age, 34. And you mentioned DeGrom, but we were also talking about Chris Bassett. And I think the consensus of our conversation was that Sonny Gray was between Bassett and DeGrom. So how much, like, where would you put it between the two? And so we ended up a little bit ahead of Bassett because I think Bassett got 63 off the top of my head. So Greg did get more than Bassett, but he didn't get the fourth year that we thought maybe he would. But turning from Gray to the Cardinals, you mentioned Mosellock didn't screw around, didn't waste any time. He said he was going to get three starters and he got them. I imagine there's some Cardinals fans who are not super jazzed about this particular combination of three starters. Do you have feelings on that? Yeah, I, I think that that's likely the case. Um, I would say that if you look at Lynn and Gibson each in a vacuum, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd be like, okay, you know, I'm up for adding one of these guys as a fourth starter. And I don't mind doing it early to kind of lock in a spot with a guy who, if nothing else you think is going to take the ball every fifth day, but to kind of jump out and grab both of them, I guess it just seems like it closes off or reduces the likelihood of adding another guy who belongs toward the top or even middle of a rotation. So I think free agency wise, the team is done with their rotation. I think that there certainly could be uh, a trade or trades that still supplement the rotation, but you know, they are pretty much locked into gray, Michaelis, Lynn and Gibson. I mean, I don't think there's a scenario. I mean, three of those guys are new and I don't think they're looking at trading Michaelis. So those are the front four, the, the, those choices have been made. And so I think the common take on these choices are that the Cardinals added a lot of innings. And I want to push back on that a little bit because I think that because these these three new guys combined for, you know, 560 innings last year. It doesn't really mean that they're going to do something similar this year. And I would argue that there's a pretty darn good chance that they do not. Um, 
So the average age of this front four is 36. Gray, who's going to be 34.4 on opening day, is the youngest. And I think just age-wise, the group has significant risk of not providing innings. And I even just, you look at these guys, and yes, they did do that last year. But Gray and Lynn were 120 inning guys in 2022. Mike Liss missed almost all of 2020 and 2021. And so I was looking up last night the number of 36-year-olds who pitch 160 innings in a given year. And I found that that typically ranges from two to four in all of baseball. So, you know, the Cardinals, are, I think, are hoping that the two to four guys who are capable of doing this and who kind of are good enough to be allowed to pitch 160 innings are like all in their rotation, despite, you know, some of them being pretty bad last year and allowing tons of hits and home runs, and not, you know, not, not really striking people out in some cases. So this rotation to me has actually a, a lot of risk of being bad. Uh-huh. Well, they did. I mean, they did add some uh, depth last year. So I don't know, maybe they feel better about their depth and that if Lynn is hurt or something that they can fill it in. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting strategy to get guys, you know, with Lynn and Gibson who were not good, but did at least like take the ball. <laughs> like that is something maybe. I don't know. Um, okay, so before we move on from the Cardinals, we got a question from Jack, which I guess he asks about what we were just talking about, uh, if they add any more starters. I mean, there was some rumors this week about Matt's being available. Some people were saying he is, some people were saying he's not. I mean, I'm sure he's available in the sense that teams will listen on anything, and I doubt they're like super committed to Matt's uh, after he's had two kind of not great years, but they probably don't want to just give him away. What do you think? You think they're going to trade, do something else, or... Yeah, I, I think that I think that there's still that glut of position players. And I think that at least, you know, from the Cardinals point of view, they're not going to be kind of backed into making a bad deal because they need to add a functional, you know, MLB ready starting pitcher out of that uh, somewhat of a surplus. They don't have to do that. They could do nothing. They could trade a Dylan Carlson for, you know, a reliever or relievers instead of you know, maybe they don't like the trade market for starting pitchers or something like that. So I think that they'll add some more depth. And yeah, I think it'll come via trade. I think that with Mets, um, I mean, he is depth. You know, before Sonny Gray, you know, he was the exciting November Mose Lock signing. And, you know, before that, it was Brett Cecil. And before that, it was Johnny Peralta. So he's done this before where he's like, kind of jumped out and grabbed these guys um, and paid him a little extra in November. And he did that with Mats. And, and, you know, I think Mats had some flashes of, of being good before he was hurt. And so some of these guys that they're rumored to be thinking about trading, you know, seem like selling low. And, you know, free agency by nature can be a buy high, but that's also what Sonny Gray is to a degree. And I think that they don't expect him to post a 279 ERA again. You know, 375 might be totally fine. So that's my answer on the, on the rotation. I, th- I don't think they're going to do anything major, but they could do something somewhat interesting via trade. All right. Well, moving across uh, to the other central division, the other most notable signing this week was uh, Kenta Maeda going to the Tigers. Did this surprise you? Did you have feelings here, 
Tim? Um, the, the team match uh, does not surprise me. I think it, it just makes sense for them to add a veteran in a rotation that did not have any veterans. And I also think that Scott Harris seems to be, you know, coming from the Giants and what he's done with the Tigers a little bit so far, he seems to be of the of the mind of the short-term deal and taking on some injury risk. And I think Maida comes with that. Um, we thought he would get more money. We thought he would get a lot more money. We thought he would get like 236. And, and if you would have kind of pushed me, I would, I would have said I was at least confident that he would get 30 million over two years. I, I didn't really see him as a $12 million pitcher or a sub Jose Quintana pitcher. And, you know, so you try to look back and be like, well, why did the market see Maida the way that it did? And I mean, he doesn't throw hard and he he's not an innings guy. He, he's not kind of the nature of the guy, guys that the Cardinals added or the reputation that they have. Um, but he was, you know, he was awesome when he came back from his injuries kind of from June forward. Um, and, you know, teams sometimes chase that upside um, and the Tigers probably are to a degree. I, I think he's a solid Solid guy to plug into the middle of the rotation for them. And, you know, it's it's a good signing. I think it's pretty relatively cheap. Yeah, I mean, it's early in the offseason, so you don't want to overreact in terms of coming to conclusions based on just a couple signings. But it does seem like maybe like the Cardinals we talked about, they think that they're getting innings. Uh, you push back on the idea that they have innings. Uh, Maeda is not an innings guy. Like you said, the last time he went over, I'm looking at his Fangraphs page now, the last time he got over 107 innings was back in 2019. So, you know, maybe there's something there. I don't know, but it's early. You know, if you look at that, though, and I'm not saying I, I, that you can plug him in for 150, 160 innings, but... You know, nobody had innings in 2020, and then he had Tommy John. So it's kind of like, in what scenario was he going to have innings? Yeah. Um, but he's also 36. Yeah. And uh, he's never hit 180, so he's never yeah, been an I mean, innings guy. If you set the over-under at 160, I'm taking the under. So, you know, I, I get that for sure. Um. All right. So... The things that have happened so far have mostly been around starting pitching. We mentioned Gray and Maeda. Aaron Nola's come off the board. Uh, but it seems like there's still teams that need lots of pitching. There have been reports this week that there were plenty of teams in on Nola before he went back to Philly. Dodgers, Atlanta, Orioles, and the Reds, I think, have all been reported as teams that were in the mix. And so those teams presumably are still looking for starting pitching unless Reynaldo Lopez is the big starting pitching ad for Atlanta, but uh, presumably not. I don't know. Um, so it still seems like there's lots of demand for the guys that are still out there. Montgomery, Snell. Yeah, I, I think I think that the demand is going to outstrip the supply, and some of these guys are going to go for a lot of money. Okay, so we had... Uh, question on uh, the Orioles actually so let's try and get that in here somebody named Diamond Dar uh, sure could someone like Frankie Montas as a one year rental bounce back or Brandon Woodruff coming off an injury be of interest to the Orioles uh, I, I think it's fair to say that Orioles are one of the teams that we have the least amount of handle on would you think that's fair to say oh yeah that's absolutely fair to say um Mike Elias has been in charge of the team for five years now. 
He has yet to spend more than $10 million on a free agent or sign one to a multi-year deal, but the team is good now. And in most of that tenure, the team was not. So he was just kind of keeping his powder dry. But, you know, that said, last year, it was not an aggressive offseason. Um, so we don't know what they're going to do, but they have tons of payroll capacity. And we don't know what kind of uh, what Mike Elias looks like when he decides to spend some money or to clear a surplus or make some moves. And there's no history to go on. Um, I think that in terms of the the reader's question, like Montas, Woodruff, there's no reason for them not to add those guys. But, you know, Woodruff is a 2025 play. Um, you know, they, they, they are one of many teams that could be interested in such a such a move. Montas is a huge question mark where you could see anything to, um, you know, DFA in May to number three starter pitching 160 plus innings and a return to form. Um, I think a lot of that depends on what it's physical looks like. Um, so he's interesting too. And if you're going to kind of do the, uh, the short-term deal um, giant style, like let's add some of these guys and, and try to try to rehab them or change their repertoire type of move, then yeah, he fits. But like, and I don't know the level of interest in in Nola with the Orioles, but Jeff Passan said that you know they they're in the hunt for a frontline starter or something something to that effect. Um, so I don't think the Rays would trade them Tyler Glass now, but they certainly make sense for Dylan Cease or Corbin Burns. And if you, I mean, we we spent so much time debating Nola and Jordan Montgomery, and when we did, I think as a pitcher analytically prefer Nola to Montgomery, but I don't think that that's going to be true of every team. And if you like Nola, then in theory, you'd be in on Montgomery. And if you're, if you're a team um, with a bunch of young players and your books are pretty clean and, you know, there's a, a guy coming along who's 25 years old, who could be a number one or two starter in Yamamoto why wouldn't the Orioles be looking hard at, at him? Um, I don't really have a good answer that they wouldn't. Um, and I also think that with Yamamoto, it could be a somewhat tolerable average annual value, but just a lot of years because he's so young. So, I mean, if, if you were willing to pay Nola $25 million a year for early 30s seasons, um, why wouldn't you be willing to put something on the table for him, Yamamoto? Yeah, to say that, the future books are fairly clean is a bit of an understatement. I just I pulled up their roster resource page while we were talking. They have one million dollars committed to their twenty twenty five payroll right now because, okay. like you say, yeah, I mean, so the, they're a complete blank slate. And I mean, mm-hmm. that's kind of that's kind of fun. And you know, the other team, and I think we we're going to talk about them a little bit. We can just talk about it now. Is the Reds? And um, you know, not to crib too much from Jeff Passon, but he kind of pointed out how these are similar dark horses that have a bunch of real a surplus of really good young position players need pitching and have no money on the books um i would would say the difference is that not that i expect the orioles to kind of run a top 10 payroll or something but i guess at least in my lifetime the orioles have had times where they kind of spent competitively where where you know in, in most of the last like at least 20 years the reds have been more of this like mid to small market team with their payroll. But, you know, if you look at the Reds, they've got two players under contract really cheaply in Hunter Green and Luke Maley. They've got six arbitration eligible players. 
And those eight equals $20 million about. Um, if you filled out the the rest of the roster with league minimum players, you'd add another 13. So, you know, excluding buyouts from guys who are gone, this team at most has $33 million accounted for. And I think their their starting payroll, the Reds, was about 82. And I think anything less than 90 would kind of be an embarrassment. And they should really clear 100. Um, Dara, did you have a question about the Reds? What What was the question? We had a reader question, right? Yeah, so this is from Ryan, who said, uh, the Reds seemingly have a lot of payroll flexibility, as you were just talking about, Tim. Uh, however, I've been a Reds fan my whole life, and I don't want to set myself up for disappointment. Realistically, how much do you think they'll spend? Has to be at least 35 or $40 million, right? Right? They put the word right with a question mark twice to emphasize their uncertainty. Yeah, I mean, so the Reds have earned that skepticism, um, just running really small payrolls and doing, you know, financially motivated moves and stuff. Um, but it was such an exciting season. They have so much super cheap talent coming together. It's just, just such an amazing opportunity. And then they have a pretty obvious need in the rotation. So um, to the reader's question, they do have to add $40 million in 2024 AAV. And honestly, if they didn't add 50, it would be kind of embarrassing because even that would only put them, I think, in the, you know, mid 80s or, or 90 million dollar range. So, I mean, this is a team that has been up to 122. The vibes are good. Like they have the flexibility and it's the right time to kind of take a shot. They're not a team that you could see adding like multiple 25 million dollar players. But I think that this is the winter where they do add one $25 million player barring a trade of for, for like Dylan Cease. But other than that, if they were in on NOLA and they were close to signing Sonny Gray and they're interested in Tyler Glass now, those are all $25 million players. So I think that telegraphs their intentions pretty clearly. They're looking hard in the rotation. They can spend some real money. Um, they're another team where, you know, if you can somehow make a great Zoom pitch and and really get him interested in the, in the city. And then, of course, you're just going to have to back up the truck. They do make sense for Yamamoto. They make some sense for Jordan Montgomery. Eduardo, Eduardo Rodriguez makes sense as well. And then I was kind of thinking, like, I was kind of playing a game of, like, well, where else could the Reds spend money? And what would be, like, the wackiest idea? Um, do you remember Wayne Krivsky? I don't. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, that's okay. That's okay. Um, yeah, I don't know if I'm a little bit older than you or whatever. <laughs> but um, he was the GM of the Reds back in 2007. November 2007, the Reds signed Francisco Cordero, a uh, closer to a you know franchise record $46 million deal. And, and you know, $46 million is a lot of money for a reliever now. So, you know... Um, 2007, it was it was a ton of money. And so Krivsky made that signing. And then five months later, he was fired. <laughs> so I'm not trying to get Nick Kral fired. But if for some reason, they run out of places to put money, and I've not seen this suggested anywhere, and I'm not saying that they should or would, but I'm just saying like, as wacky ideas go, Josh Hader um, is, is a guy that the Reds could afford. And they could in a very Francisco Cordero way, um, you know, slide him right into the back of the bullpen and still have Alexis Diaz. And um, 
and feel like you've maybe shortened games to seven innings. Um, they obviously need starting pitching. They should get starting pitching. I guess my point is the Reds can afford Josh Hader. Uh, what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, I think it's possible. I put them on some, when we did our picks for the top 50, I put them on not Hader, but some other notable relievers. I forget which one, but maybe like... Uh, Maybe I had Reynaldo Lopez going there or something like that. Like I did just because the position player core is so strong that they just and they have like you said, they have all this money to spend. They sh- it just makes sense that they would spend it on pitching somehow. So that makes sense. Um, circling back to Yamamoto for a second. I know that you love uh, wacky stuff, unpredictable stuff to happen. And you've been putting just floating the idea of Yamamoto on one of these dark horse teams, the Orioles and the Reds. Do you think that that's more plausible than maybe people think because of his age? Everyone's expecting like, oh, the Mets, the Yankees, like one of these big, typically big spending teams. But because he's such a unique free agent to be so young, I think yeah, you, I do. you really I, want I, it to happen. But do you actually think it can happen? Yeah, I, I do. And so I don't know what his mindset is. And I think his agent, Joel Wolf talked to Japanese media and basically... Sounds like he just said a bunch of things that made sure he didn't shrink his market in any possible way, which is, you know, kind of agent 101. So uh, he doesn't mind playing with another Japanese player. Well, (laughs) yeah, okay. Um, He has no geographic restrictions. I mean, agents almost never come out and say that the player does have geographic restrictions. And so, but if, if those things are true and Yamamoto just absolutely wants to max out the dollars here and, and, you know, go for broke on the contract. Um, he he should take a hard look at the teams that are not really being mentioned. And you know, I think about with the Reds, like one example from from pretty far back where there was an international free agent and everybody wanted him, and absolutely no one thought it would be the Reds getting him was a Roldis Chapman. Um, but that was a thirty million dollar contract, and this is over 200 million. So it's obviously not the same, but, um, you know, or, or also, um, didn't the A's get Yoana Cespedes? So those are both Cuban guys, but, you know, or the White Sox getting Jose Abreu. Um, sometimes, and, you know, it happens, it's happened a lot with Cuba, but, you know, sometimes players are coming over and it's such a rare shot to get somebody so young. I mean, a Diamondback signed Yasmani Tomas is another one that comes to mind. So, I mean, I, I think that there's not really a discount here for Yamamoto, but if, you know, if Aaron Nola is 172 and for another team to sign him, it feels like it would have been 180 plus, then you might not be that far, you know, away from, from Yamamoto. I do think Yamamoto is going to cost over 200 and have the posting fee. So the, the gap could be decent, but to answer your question in a long winded way, yes, I, I do think that half of baseball is in play here. Even I, I, the favorites are kind of more obvious teams though. All right. Well, one, another team that has been interested in Yamamoto is the giants. We have a question here about the giants from Christian who says Farhan Zaidi and the giants are once again, claiming to be all in on the free agent market. Do you think that players not wanting to play in San Francisco for a variety of reasons is a substantial factor in past and future failures to bring in star caliber talent? They're already failing in the future. Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah I love the pessimism of 
pretty much like most fan bases are just like so everybody pissed. is so mad i know it's man it's not a good way to be but um <laughs> so i thought of you know i we uh, we discussed some of these questions in advance a little bit and so i thought about it a little bit and i thought about you know this whole vibe and reputation and i also just kind of searched up what what zaidi has said um and you know he did say that he thinks San Francisco is, quote, a little bit of a polarizing place among players in terms of the desire to play there. Um, he felt that it was about uh, geography, politics, whatever. So I will say that, you know, the the guy in charge of signing players would, would answer that question. Yes. But I would. So I think that there's like four big examples of, you know, the Giants being the bridesmaid or trying to get the big name, but not getting them. And I, I don't think it, it it's like damning for the city of San Francisco. So the first two that I, that I would mention are Carlos Correa and Bryce Harper. So these are both players that if the Giants really wanted them, regardless of whatever Zaidi was talking about, they could have had them and they could have them now. Correa, as we know, had an agreement with the Giants. So he didn't have an issue. He just needed to be paid the most money. Um, the Giants didn't like his physical. They backed out. And then Harper, you know, the Giants offered 310 over 12 years. And so Harper got offered 330 by the Phillies. And, you know, I think that in Pennsylvania, there's a lot less income tax than in California. So the feeling was that the Giants would have had to go pretty, pretty well over 3.30. And I think at the time that at least MLB trade rumors thought that Bryce Harper was a $400 million player. So to say that the Giants should have or could have gone to 3.50 or something or 3.60 to get Harper back then, um, I think is reasonable. And they just chose not to. So that's not about the city. That's just about making a choice about where your limit is on a player. And then if you look at the other two, both guys that wound up with the Yankees, Aaron Judge and, and Giancarlo Stanton. And Stanton was kind of back in the Brian Sabian days. Um, Stanton did choose not to go there. He said it was a little bit about growing up a Dodgers fan, but mostly about not being convinced the Giants were a World Series contender. I mean, so you could take him at his word or you could not believe him and say it's about the city. You know, we, we can't really know that. Um, Judge, it just seemed like Judge wanted to stay in New York and wanted to use teams like the Giants and Padres to make sure that the Yankees made him a competitive offer. I mean, because we have him turning down more than 400 million from the Padres. So I think that they just had the, the advantage of incumbency. So I, I don't know if it says a lot about the Giants or their city. Um, where, where do you stand on all this? I think everything you just said is reasonable. And I think that uh, ultimately, you know, if you want to get something done and you pay for it, you will get it done. And it seemed like last year they went into the off season committed to make a big strike. And I would assume that, you know, cause they stayed in the judge sweepstakes for a while. They knew that Correa was there and they presumably had had some conversations about what Correa's asking price was. And they presumably said something like, if we miss out on judge, we'll talk. And then the whole physical thing happened, which nobody saw coming. And by the time that happened, all the other big free agents were gone. And so then they had to like spread their money around. And so if I recall, I, it's like Mitch Hanniger and Michael Conforto and Taylor Rogers and Sean Manaya and Ross Stripling, because that's what was left. 
And so I don't think that had anything to do with San Francisco being an undesirable destination for the free agents. I think it was just a weird freak incident that had never happened before, like we saw with Correa. Um, and so I think they're in the same position this winter where they want to make a big strike and they're in on everybody. They're in on Bellinger and Yamamoto and various other guys. And I think they will get at least one just because I think they, I don't know, we talk about desperation sometimes with these like free agent markets about which team is most desperate to make a move. And I think Giants are, have got to be near the top of the list in terms of yeah, desperate teams. I completely agree. Um, I, I feel like this thing is going to go way beyond Zaidi and just be kind of ownership and we need attendance. And I think that, you know, I mean, they were, they made a really aggressive offers to judge and Correa. They weren't, um, I mean, the Harper offer, as I discussed, it really wasn't that impressive, but the judge and Correa offers were. And so, you know, we don't know exactly what it's going to take for Otani, Yamamoto or Bellinger, but Competition is fierce and they're going to have to do something that probably feels a, a little reckless or, or irrational to win one of those guys. And it's certainly something where I think, you know, if you're Scott Boris, you'd like Yamamoto and Otani to go elsewhere. And so you could push uh, Bellinger and Snell on them because Bellinger and Snell are kind of in this thrown little mini class where... I think everybody feels like if the contract reaches a certain point, generally, you know, in the Snell, it's a 200 range and Bellinger kind of similar, like 200 plus that people are going to be like, wow, that was really risky. That was kind of nuts. I don't like this. This is a landmine. And so I feel like for Boris to pull off a contract of that level for either of those guys, he's going to need desperation to come into play. All right, so we have one more question here, which is from Nick, who says, what would it take for the Mariners to sign Soto to a long-term contract if they can acquire him via trade? Lots of hypotheticals in this one. Yeah, I mean, that's always fun. We're MLB trade rumors, so we like speculating about things. Sometimes we're right, sometimes we're not. Um, So, you know, thinking about Juan Soto and thinking about, you know, Boris clients and stuff, there's always a point where he would sign an extension, even with free agency a year away. But we have some data on this, and I think we have it because the Nationals, in a very targeted way, put it out in the media. But in July 2022, Soto turned down $440 million over 15 years. And by our measures, nobody has ever even signed a $400 million contract in terms of new money. And so... Um, for Soto to turn that down seems kind of shocking and like, you know, wow, what's he looking for? That's crazy. But, you know, if you think about being under, you know, team control for two additional years as an arbitration eligible player, Juan Soto, I think, knew that barring catastrophic injury or brutally awful performance, he was going to make 50 million for those two seasons and possibly more. And so we think ultimately if he does get 33 or so in 2024, that he'll have earned 56 million for those two years. So if you look at what, you know, what's left to cover three free agent years in that offer, you have 384. And so, you know, if you look at turning down 384 for free agent years at a guy who's going to be 26 in the first year, you know, there's a good comparable in Bryce Harper and 384 is well beyond 330. But then if you look at 
Judge, Judge was a full five years older than Soto is going to be when Soto hits the market. And Judge was still offered more than $400 million. So if you take a guy as young as Soto and you take that kind of current trend of paying guys through the age of 40, you could logically suggest a 15-year deal for Soto, especially kind of the movement toward reducing AAV a little bit. And so I still feel like just a superstar needs to be paid probably at least 30 and possibly like low to mid 30s on the average annual value. So if you do 15 times 30, you get 450 million. And if you do 15 times 33, you're up to 495. And so we've been talking a little bit with superstars. It kind of just starts with a round number and you can put any number of years after that because you're just taking their entire career. So the round number I think for Soto and free agency is 500 million. I think if the Mariners or any team that were to acquire Soto put a $500 million deal on the table, there's a pretty good chance he'd take it because I don't really see how bidding could go much higher, but I do think bidding could reach that level. Mm -hmm. And it would be stunning if the Mariners did that because, you know, we had a report this week that they are apparently like shying away from the Otani market, supposedly. So it would be stunning if they just had $500 million sitting there for Soto, I would think. Yeah, I don't really understand. Um, yeah, we're not going to get too into the Otani market, but then we're going to trade for Soto and give them $500 million. That's not too compatible. But to, you know, just to answer the question, what would it take to sign a Boris superstar who's going to be a free agent at 26 and keep him away from free agency? I think it's $500 million bucks. Plus whatever prospects you gave up to get him in the yeah, first place. Yeah. Uh, all right. So that's all the time that we have. Tim, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Uh, so like I mentioned off the top, the winter meetings are just around the corner. So uh, is it okay if we hype that we're going to have 24-7 coverage here? Is that confirmed or not? Confirmed? Yeah, hype it up. It's confirmed. Um, basically, as of Sunday night, December 3rd, I think, yeah, we're going 24-7. We got guys doing the graveyard shift. Um, we're we're ready if somebody signs at 3 a.m. Um, if if you're in a certain time zone or you're you're up in the middle of the night and you just want the flow of more MLB trade rumors, that will be happening. So that we, we, we like to do that and we're gonna do that this year. So come to MLBTradeRumors.com at all hours of the night. We will be covering everything for those winter meetings, which are next week, like I said. And uh, the train is leaving the station, picking up steam, and it's going to go nuts over the next few weeks, presumably. So check all that out, and we will talk to you on the podcast next week. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Remember to visit MLBTradeRumors.com and follow us on Twitter at MLBTradeRumors.